Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Anti-Tech Cast. Uh, I'm Griffin, and today I'm here with Sean Fleming from the University of Cambridge. Uh, how are you doing, Sean? Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me, Griffin. So uh, we are talking to you today because you recently uh, published an article called The Unabomber and the Origins of Anti-Tech Radicalism. And, uh, you know, we had this recommended to us, and we read it, and we loved it. It's We thought it was a really great and uh, fair representation of um, these ideas and where anti-tech ideas and where they came from, especially where uh, Kaczynski got a lot of his ideas. Um, so it's a, it's a nice refreshing uh, academic piece that gives these ideas uh, their merit and doesn't, uh, you know, um, talks about Kaczynski's ideas rather than uh, his activities that got him uh, infamous. And, um, uh, so we like these articles and we want more of them. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, Sean, before uh, we kind of get into some of the things you're writing about, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, how you got into these ideas, how you maybe found out about Kaczynski and thought it important to analyze his ideas in this way. Okay, well, uh, I first read Industrial Society and Its Future, Kaczynski's Manifesto, in late 2018. So for background here, I'm not American. I'm from a remote part of Canada. And so the, the Unabomber doesn't loom as large culturally for us. Mm. So I had heard of him, of course, as most people have, but I knew absolutely nothing about him. So I was going in blind. I actually came across Industrial Society and its future on a reading list for a law and technology discussion group. So I Interesting. So did you even know that it was like the guy that sent the bombs that wrote this piece or you just found the piece on its own? Uh, I associated Theodore Kaczynski with the Unabomber. I knew that much. Okay, yeah. But I came across it on a reading list and I, at the time was working on you know, issues having to do with responsibility for harms caused by autonomous weapons. So I was interested in what the lawyers were saying about the issues of responsibility that are posed by new technologies. Mm -hmm. So what I was working on wasn't very radical, to say the least. And so I, I came across the manifesto and decided to put it aside for some weekend reading. And I thought it was going to be an insane conspiratorial rant. Right. I, I was expecting something like Charles Manson. Mm -hmm. And when I read it, I was pretty floored by it. I, I thought to myself, well, first of all, this isn't at all conspiratorial. It's incredibly radical, but it is radically anti-conspiratorial. Mm -hmm. The whole logic of industrial society and its future is evolutionary. Mm -hmm. He sees human beings as products of evolution. He thinks we're maladapted to life in a world of concrete and steel. He thinks we're biologically and uh, psychologically maladjusted to this kind of life. And he doesn't see technology as the product of a conspiracy. He doesn't think there's an evil cabal of technocrats plotting to enslave humanity. Right. He thinks that we're seduced by technology because of its benefits. Mm -hmm. So we're sleepwalking into a world where we're dominated by technology. There's no one plotting against us. And so it struck me as pretty interesting. And at the time I hadn't read much about theories of technology. I hadn't read much in the philosophy of technology. 
I hadn't read Jacques Ellul or Lewis Mumford or, or any of those figures. So I wasn't sure how original it was, but it was pretty intriguing. It, well, I discovered that it was one of the most read political manifestos of the 20th century. And I, I did a quick library search to see what had been written about it. And I was shocked that hardly anything had been written about it. There's hardly any secondary literature on industrial society and its future. And so I, I was pretty, pretty appalled by this, actually. Yeah. It seemed like my profession of political theory had abdicated its role of analyzing the salient political manifestos and documents and ideologies of our time. Why would so, you say that people were so hesitant to uh, write about it? For for why, what would account do you think for this absence of secondary literature? Good question. Um, maybe I should piggyback on someone else. So, uh, Michael Mello, who is he's a former law professor at Vermont, had corresponded quite a lot with Kaczynski, given him legal advice. He's probably the well, or was, he died a few years ago, but he was the undisputed expert on Kaczynski's legal case. Mm -hmm. And he always said that, that Kaczynski was ignored and portrayed as insane at his trial because he, he profaned everything that modern society holds divine. Mm -hmm. He was too radical for us to contemplate. So we had no choice but to dismiss him as a madman. So maybe that's it. It can't be that he used violence. The violence alone doesn't explain right. why people are so terrified of, of Kaczynski. If you, if you look at other figures who are you know, violent radicals, think of, you know, we teach Lenin in political theory courses. We mm -hmm. teach Antonio Negri who did time in prison in Italy and you know, who's still a darling of the left. Mm -hmm. Maybe academics detest Kaczynski precisely because he hates the left. I think that's part of it. But you know, there, could, there's like a lot of lefts, leftists in academia. So they're kind of immediately taken or they don't want to engage with it. That we, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's it, and I also think there's a, a deep pathology in the discipline of political theory at work here. Mm -hmm. So political theorists tend to latch on to figures that they like. Mm -hmm. For the most part, if you see someone working on the thought of someone, whether it's Hannah Arendt or Thomas Hobbes or John Locke or Friedrich Hayek or you know, Rousseau or whoever it is, you can be pretty sure that that person is sympathetic to the thinker that they're analyzing. Right. So it often seems like uh, a, a game where people are using historical political thinkers as, you know, as puppets mm -hmm. in their own little intellectual battles. And I think that's what's really unhealthy about the discipline of political theory. Like, why are people so unwilling, unwilling to engage seriously with thinkers that they detest yeah or thinkers that they find troubling yeah yeah that seems like antithetical to getting to the truth of matters of political matters and otherwise right like yeah so in in short to answer the original question uh, i 
started working on this because I've never seen such a glaring gap in the literature, so to speak. Mm -hmm. This was one of the most famous manifestos of the 20th century, and hardly anyone had written about it. And second, I discovered that there was a massive trove of material at the University of Michigan, at the mm -hmm. Labadee Collection, that includes copies of most of the material that the FBI confiscated from Kaczynski's cabin back in April 1996. Mm -hmm. And hardly anyone had used this for academic purposes. It's one of the most popular collections at Michigan's library, but no one had used it to write this intellectual history to figure out where his ideas came from. Did you say even, would you say that even, because um, in the first part of your article, you talk about um, some academics that have attempted to provide some kind of intellectual history um, for Kaczynski. And do you think the, these people as well were also um, uh, somehow they, they didn't access that treasure trove in Ann Arbor either? Or they, they weren't accessing it properly? Is that, do, do you think that that's, that's the case? Well, when most of the attempts to analyze the manifesto were written, the archive at Michigan wasn't available. Mm. So some of them can't be faulted because, well, they, they didn't have access to what I had access to. Right. So much of the early work there, well, there, there are a few sources. There's an article by Tim Luke in Telos called Rereading the Unabomber Manifesto. Mm -hmm. That's from 1996, 1997. So that's, that's really the first academic attempt to analyze the manifesto. And Luke was working with no primary material whatsoever. He was just reading the manifesto and trying to figure out where the ideas came from that way. Gotcha. Then there was um, a much better article by uh, Scott Corey, who was at the time a PhD student at Berkeley. And Corey's article is better simply because he had access to a lot more material. So he used a lot of the legal documents that he could get his hands on. Mm -hmm. He was one of the few people without a press pass who actually attended Kaczynski's trial. So it's a pretty good article, but he doesn't have access to all the correspondence and all the all the stuff that the FBI dug out of boxes in Kaczynski's cabin, mm -hmm. his drafts and notes and all this sort of stuff. And then there's the most popular account of his intellectual influences, which comes from a book uh, called Harvard and the Unabomber by mm -hmm. Alston Chase. And there, as far as I can tell, Chase just wildly speculates about Kaczynski's influences with hardly any evidence whatsoever. Mm. And so some of the early accounts of his influences can't be faulted. Some of them, I think, are just so stories that, well, make pretty sweeping claims about where his ideas came from without any evidence. Right. This the, We read the manifesto and this idea sounds like this idea. So we're just going to tie this huge collection of authors to him. Like that, that list that uh, uh, you mentioned of, of all the authors that he supposedly read or that they claimed that he was inspired from. And then he hadn't even read a lot, like most of them that were on that list. It's uh, so it's, it, it, yeah, it seems kind of evident that they were just kind of throwing out whoever sounded similar. Right. That's right. And even the similarities are pretty tenuous. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Chase says, well, Kaczynski sounds a bit like 
Uh, E.F. Schumacher, he sounds a bit like Lewis Mumford, sounds a bit like Arendt. There's a bit of Aristotle in there, he thinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric Frum, the list goes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Luke says he sounds a bit like Marcuse. Lots of people have said he sounds like Paul Goodman. It turns out that he had actually read very few of them. Mm-hmm. And most of these figures, if he had read them, he read them only after he wrote the manifesto. So what's remarkable about him is actually not how similar he is to previous critics of technology, but how little he knows or cares about them. Yeah. He's really only one prominent critic of technology in the 20th century that he knew or cared much about, and that was Jacques Ellul. Yeah, so can you, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about how he was inspired by Ellul's ideas and how they connect to each other? So most of what Kaczynski borrowed from Ellul comes from Ellul's 1954 book, La Technique, which was translated into English in 1964 and published as The Technological Society. There are several ideas that Kaczynski takes from Ellul. One is that human beings are maladapted to life in a technological society. I discussed that at the beginning. Mm-hmm. The basic idea is that human beings evolved in a primitive Stone Age environment. We're still genetically hunter-gatherers, but now we've been thrust into this world of concrete and steel, and we're yeah. psychologically ill-equipped to deal with that. Genetics don't now, evolve that quickly. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. And so that is one idea. Now, it's notable, though, that For Ellul, the mismatch between human beings and the technological society was more social than biological. Ellul thought that the problem was that uh, our norms and morals and social structures and communities can't evolve fast enough to keep up with technology. Whereas Kaczynski wasn't concerned so much about those things. He was concerned about our biology. Mm-hmm. So already there, they diverge. But the basic idea that we're maladapted or maladjusted to technology comes from Alul. The second idea is the idea that technology is autonomous, that it is a force beyond human control. It can't be subject to rational human control. That technology constitutes a self-perpetuating system. This also comes from Alul. This is probably Ellul's most famous idea, and it's, it's papered all over um, Kaczynski's writings. Mm-hmm. There are also lots of little bits and pieces. So uh, there's the idea that technology is the opposite of nature. That also comes from Ellul. Uh, the idea that, well, in part, the idea of revolution comes from Ellul, though Kaczynski takes it in his own direction. And the, the least obvious thing that comes from Alul is the idea that leftism is a form of pseudo-revolution. So this mm-hmm. is one of the big, big arguments in, in industrial society and its future. And the one I think that has puzzled readers the most. So you open up industrial society and its future, and he starts talking about technology and what it's done to us. And then in the very first main section, he talks about leftism. He talks about how... Uh, the left is uh, psychologically perverted. Mm-hmm. And, and he says that the left essentially uh, 
co-opts the revolutionary impulse and channels it into benign outlets, outlets that are harmless to the system. So he, he sees social activism as, in Ellul's terms, a form of useless revolt. It makes us feel better, but it doesn't really do anything. It's a so surrogate Ellul, activity, right? That's right. So the surrogate activity, that idea comes from elsewhere. But the basic idea that the left uh, pulls the teeth of revolutionary impulses, domesticates them, creates a, a kind of surrogate revolution, that it, it hijacks the revolutionary impulse and, well, distracts attention from the problem of technology. That comes from the end of the technological society by Alul. So from Alul, just to recap, we have the idea that human beings are maladapted to a technological society, the idea that technology is autonomous, and the idea that, that social activism, that the social movements of our time are pseudo-revolutionary. Th that's mainly what Kaczynski takes from Alul. Gotcha. And, and uh, um, I guess I would ask then how how does he diverge from Alul a little bit? Like, I guess specifically, um, uh, I guess first, I guess we could specifically talk about like more of those nuanced differences between like his evolutionary and biological focus versus Alul's um, social economic focus. Like how, um, how do these approaches differ in your eyes? Or like, okay, well, yeah. uh, maybe the, the biggest, deepest difference of all before we get on to the specific difference, mm -hmm. specific set of differences, is that Elul is a fundamentally continental thinker. Mm. So he, he's very French. His dialectical approach, his kind of meandering, free-flowing style is quintessentially French and heavily influenced by Marx. Mm. So whenever Elul is saying something, there's always an antithesis to whatever he's saying. So the, you know, the thesis that technology is hemming us in on all sides, that it's de depriving us completely of freedom, is one side of a dialectic. So uh, the, the other side he gives you in a later book called The Ethics of Freedom, which basically says that although technology has deprived us almost entirely of freedom, we can still find freedom in Jesus Christ. He's a fundamentally Christian thinker. Mm -hmm. so he's a dialectical theologian, is one way of putting it. And that is not at all what Kaczynski is. Kaczynski essentially lopped off the theological part and the dialectical part. So Kaczynski writes like an analytic philosopher. Mm -hmm. He, well, numbered paragraphs. That says it all. Yeah, very his style yeah. is radically different because his method and his worldview are radically different. So Elul is trying to mount a kind of theological critique of technology. And Kaczynski, although he uh, abhors what science has created, he accepts the scientific worldview. So yeah. he understands human beings and technology alike as products of evolutionary processes. And he speaks the language of behavioral and cognitive psychology. Uh, even, even his bombs, you know, he uh, documented the results in 
you know, an extensive set of lab notes. So although he, although he detests science and technology at one level, he accepts the worldview of the scientist or the technician. And do you find that to be a, do you find that to be a bit ironic considering his stance on those things? Well, you can you can read it in two ways. You can read it as blatant hypocrisy, mm-hmm. which is how some have read it. You know, Ron Arnold is one who wrote this book, um, Eco Terror, back in the in I guess it was 1977. He tried to associate Kaczynski with the radical environmental movement, mm-hmm. and one of his claims is that Kaczynski is blatantly hypocritical, you know, using technology to attack technology and using technology to propagate anti-tech ideas is inherently hypocritical. You know, others who've criticized him along these lines are people like Kevin Kelly, the co-founder of Wired, who's well aware of Kaczynski's ideas and uh, actually accepts quite a lot of them, especially the idea that technology is a self-organizing system, but diverges from him on the obvious point of whether technology is good. Yeah. And so Kelly says the same. He says, look, Kaczynski was living off the fat of the technological system. He was a blatant hypocrite. Now, the other way of reading Kaczynski is that his critique of technology was an internal criticism. And he understands himself as a product of the technological system. He's trying to attack it from the inside. And so, whereas Elul tries to set up an alternative vantage point, an external vantage point, a non-technical vantage point from which to criticize the technological society. Kaczynski tries to mount his critique from the inside, from inside the worldview of the technician. And so Kaczynski might retort to the the charge of hypocrisy. He might say, well, if my critique succeeds, it's all the more damning because I've shown that even from the scientists or the technicians' own premises, uh, the technological system is fundamentally flawed and beyond redemption. So this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to mount an internal critique of modern technology. That, that makes sense. I, I think that's kind of something similar to what we're doing. You know, we get a lot of charges of like, oh, you guys are anti-tech, but you have a website and a podcast and you're like doing all those things. Well, you know, the idea is to attack it from the inside and that, uh, you know, we have to recognize that we're a product of it. Yeah. In the same way. And uh, hopefully that will make the argument even stronger. Um, I guess on the other side of that coin, would you say or do you think that maybe Alul was, I don't want, I don't want to say naive, but like, uh, that he was uh, missing something when he was trying to take that external stance? Do you think he was failing to recognize how he was a product of the technical system? Or, um, I don't know, do you think there's another side of the coin there? I, I think he recognized that he was a product of the technological system. Uh, one, of, one of the things that he takes from, from Hegel and repeats endlessly is the idea that the first act of freedom is a recognition of necessity. You have to recognize that you are constrained and under the power of the system in order to have any possibility of resisting it. Uh, Elul is not someone who has any illusions there, but you might think that his critique of technology is less persuasive because it comes from the outside. Mm 
Now, Elul would retort that it's actually Kaczynski who is, well, off the rails here. So one of the things he says in his uh, 1988 book, The Technological Bluff, is that, that technical thinking is incapable of thinking about technique. It's not possible in Alul's view to mount a critique of technoscience from within uh, the technological worldview. So the argument here is something like this. As soon as you try to use technoscience, as soon as you adopt the calculating strategic language of technoscience, you are reinforcing it. Mm -hmm. So for Elul, technique is a mindset. It's not just a, a system that's external to us. The reason that the technological system persists is that we all think in te technical terms. Mm -hmm. So Marcuse makes a similar point later on. He says, well, what sustains this, this system? Well, one-dimensional modes of discourse. Modes of discourse that give priority to a certain kind of rationality and efficiency over everything else. So for Elul, it's necessary to break the habits of mind that sustain technology in order to really defeat it. And so he would argue against Kaczynski that, that Kaczynski is simply reinforcing the technological mindset. He's not fundamentally challenging anything in Alul's view. Would you say Alul then also would disagree with the idea of using technology in any way? There, that, that's that's the same thing for him, right? Is like using technology and having that technical mindset. Like, is there? Do you think there's any way for Alul to agree with the idea that you could use technology in a way uh, that takes down the system a little bit, as Kaczynski seems to think we can do, or does he think that as soon as you start using it, you're you're supporting it? Like you have to be completely external from it. Is that, is that kind of where he's coming from, do you think? I don't think he thinks you can use technology against itself. <laughs> I think his view is that when you use technology, you're making a sort of deal with the devil. Right. He doesn't think power can be turned against power. His mm -hmm. fundamental commitment here is that no one can really control power at any fundamental level. Mm -hmm. So just as he thinks you know, uh, that violence cannot overthrow a power structure and replace violence with nonviolence, just as you know, violence can't be overturned violently, he doesn't think technology can be overturned technologically. So uh, I guess that's a good segue into like, what do you, um, can you say a little bit about what Alul's perspective on how to revolt against the system, like, uh, or maybe the differences between Alul and Kaczynski's approach to how to, uh, you know, either weaken the system or take it down or revolt against it in some way. How do their approaches differ? All right. So Kaczynski's approach is, I suppose, an empirical approach to revolution. So Kaczynski thinks that you can look back through the history. Of revolution and distill lessons for an anti-tech revolution in the present. Mm -hmm. So he says we can look at the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution and the Irish Revolution and a whole host of other revolutions 
and we can discern some rough guidelines and some pitfalls to avoid for the anti-tech revolution. So fundamentally for him, the anti-tech revolution is modeled on historical revolution. And despite what he says in industrial society and its future, he's pretty confident that it's going to be a violent revolution. Mm -hmm. He doesn't think the technological system can be overthrown without force. And you know, although he's ambivalent about violence in the manifesto, he says in this unpublished essay called In Defense of Violence, which is in the Labrador archive, that the revolution he envisions is almost certainly going to be violent. He says he, he downplayed the role of violence in the manifesto simply because he didn't think the media would publish anything mm -hmm. that explicitly advocated violence. So that is Kaczynski's revolution. It's a violent overthrow of the established power structure. It's a destruction not only of the state, but of the broader infrastructure that sustains the technological system. And you can get a better idea of what he means here, what the beginnings of this revolution might look like, which is really large scale industrial sabotage from his essay, Hit Where It Hurts. So that's Kaczynski's revolution. It's violent and it's based on historical examples. Elul's revolution is exactly the opposite. So Kaczynski read uh, Elul's book, uh, Autopsy of Revolution, when he was, I suppose, when he was in Montana, but completely ignored or missed the point. So one of Elul's central points in this book is that an anti-tech revolution can't possibly be modeled on historical revolutions. And there are a few reasons for that, but one of the main ones is that technology is too global and too pervasive to be overthrown like a government. He thinks it's a huge mistake to extrapolate from historical examples of revolution. And he thinks that the kind of strategic calculating thought about revolution which you'll find in Kaczynski's book, Anti-Tech Revolution, is exactly the kind of thought that will simply reinforce technique as a mindset. So Elul's, Elul doesn't give you, a, well, a handbook for revolution here, and he's using revolution in a pretty odd sounding way, but mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's one little snippet from uh, Autopsy of Revolution near the very end that I think captures what he means by revolution. So he says, uh, it, it, I'll paraphrase here. He says, it would represent a fundamental breach in the technological society, a truly revolutionary attitude if contemplation could replace frantic activity. Mm -hmm. So Elul's revolution doesn't involve overthrowing anything by force. It involves deliberately slowing down and rejecting the, well, the, the sort of arms race in which we find ourselves in modern society. So just kind of not engaging with it, just backing off, right? And Well, it's like, not total divestment from it either. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it, I don't think Elul thinks we can run to the woods and, right. and escape from it in any fundamental way. But what he thinks is that we can deliberately slow down in defiance of the system. And if enough people do that, 
if enough if enough people refuse to think and live in a technical way concerned with means over ends with efficiency over all else then the system will inevitably break down do you find so, that to be a bit ideological or do you think that's actually like re practically realistic in in some future or uh, uh idyllic I, sorry i'm sorry. not optimistic i'm not optimistic about the possibility of doing that mm -hmm. uh, but it sounds to me kind of like uh like what gandhi says about how the indians should should well deliberately withdraw consent from the british empire so for gandhi the, the way of getting rid of the British was not to drive them out with force, but to refuse to participate in their industrial civilization, mm -hmm. to put the mind over the body. And that is essentially Alul's idea of what resistance against technology looks like. Mm -hmm. Slow down is really the message. Mm -hmm. You don't, one thing that I like about your article is that you don't shy away from talking about, um, the uh the the violence aspect especially in relation to like more modern movements like ITS and things like that that um seem to be continuing these violent tendencies um you uh one thing that got me thinking is uh you know you mentioned that ITS kind of has this um uh idea that violence is innate to human nature kind of and so like that's kind of their way of revolting against the system that's in place the nonviolent system that's in place is to embrace our humanity through violence kind of or at least that's how i'm interpreting their their position um and i guess um it makes me think a little bit about like you know just i think it's very questionable what our natural tendencies are as humans um and one thing that i think of about when I think about Alul is his idea if I guess if I, I was wondering if you could clarify for me then does Alul have this idea that um, humans have an innate tendency to think about things in a technological way or to engage in like rational technique it, um, am I wrong about that or does, doesn't he kind of say that we have a tendency to rationalize the world in that way Okay, well, I don't think Alul has any fixed concept of human nature. Mm. This is one fundamental difference between Kaczynski and Alul. So again, for Alul, uh, the problem with technology is that it has outstripped the evolution of our social structures and communities and norms. You know, the mismatch between us and technology is sociological rather than biological, right? It's not based on human nature. And I think judging by the first part of the technological society, uh, Elul thinks that in the past, we were perfectly capable of resisting the pull of technique. So he talks about several different societies that, that resisted the urge to prioritize means over ends. So first he says, look at the ancient Greeks. So the ancient Greeks were incredibly sophisticated philosophically and scientifically, mm -hmm. but he claims they had contempt for practical application. They could have used their knowledge to manipulate the world, but they didn't. 
they wanted to understand it. So he says, for the Greeks, there was a, a stark division between science, understanding of the world, and technique, application. And then he says, you can see this later on in, uh, in Christian societies, you know, from the Roman Empire to the I don't remember whether he says the 12th or 14th century. He says, in Christian society, uh, early Christian society, uh, or even up through the Middle Ages, Christianity posed uh, a difficult barrier to the expansion of technique. Mm -hmm. uh, Christianity was the sort of sand in the gears of the machine. Nothing could be developed without moral criticism. So early Christianity created this kind of external vantage point from which to criticize technique. So it was a constant source of judgment that technique couldn't overcome. So for Elul, it's not human nature that's decisive. It's, it's culture that's decisive. That's interesting, especially considering like, you know, I, I think um, a lot about how the tech society that we live in today is uh, very, at least the way I experience it through the internet and stuff, it's very vehement and vehemently secular that it uh, uh, there's like a rise in atheism with an embrace of, that comes with an embrace of science and technology because I think, you know, there's that recognition that it halts progress, so to speak. Um, and uh, so I, I guess, uh, yeah, is, is, that, is that what we're kind of missing today? We're missing... Um, uh, a moral barrier between uh, that should be there for for progress. Well, uh, Elul would say, actually, we don't live in a secular age. We have simply abandoned the old religions and, adopted the and new ones. created a new one. Mm -hmm. We've created, uh, well, Kaczynski calls it technianity, uh, analogous to Christianity. And Lul calls it, I think, technolatry, as in idolatry. Hmm. And so he says, first, we abandoned religions of nature. We abandoned spiritual views of nature in favor of, you know, Ab Abrahamic religions. Mm -hmm. And then we chased uh, religious significance out of all the things we used to attach it to. And projected it onto the objects that we now revere. So the computer is a religious symbol in our time. Mm -hmm. It's almost sacrilegious, blasphemous even, to smash one, yeah. to damn one, just, or, or even to have contempt for one. And so Elul thinks that it's not that we lack religion, it's that we've abandoned the old religions that grew up organically and now uh, adhere to a kind of industrial technological religion, which, well, essentially deifies means and, and has contempt for ends. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, um, I guess I also want to ask too. I, um, uh, you know, there's these two approaches that a little Kaczynski seemed to have. It's kind of like um, 
so alluls is to um, you know focus on uh, contemplation rather than uh, practicality, right? Kind of getting back to that Greek mindset, um, so to speak. And then uh, Ted think, Kaczynski thinks that we need to take a more practical approach and we need to use technology in order to take it down, that we need to take the system down before it just harms us even further or turns us into slaves or brings us into a dystopia where it will be too late to do anything about anything. Um, I, I guess, you know, one thing that we've been learning about a little bit recently as a group is um, this concept of accelerationism, um, which may or may not be a, a consequence or um, be, be derived from like Marxist philosophy. Um, mm -hmm. I can't say for certain, but um, I know, do, do you, uh, have you thought much about accelerationism and how it connects this stuff? And like, I don't know, I wonder if you could uh, enlighten me a little bit on how that approach might uh, uh, relate to these guys. All right, there's lots to say about accelerationism. Mm -hmm. uh, so accelerationism in its well contemporary trendy form comes from, from what I know, one main source, and that is the British philosopher Nick Land. Yes. So he's a, a kind of reactionary who is incredibly optimistic about technology. I don't really understand what Land is about and haven't read enough of him to comment much on him, but he, he seems to be the inspiration for directly or indirectly for most of the contemporary forms of accelerationism. So you can divide accelerationists into really two camps. You have the ones like Land who are socially reactionaries. They want some sort of hierarchical even neo-Catholic society, mm -hmm. but at the same time are optimistic about the prospects that technology could liberate us from labor, for example. And then you have left accelerationists who think that capitalism is actually holding back technological progress. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a hindrance to what technology could do if it were unleashed from the constraints of things like economic viability. So the left accelerationist wants to unleash the potential of technology to liberate humanity. And in order to do that, thinks that we have to accelerate past capitalism. But they have a common root in Nick Land, who is decidedly on the right. Now, I think accelerationist ideas go, go back much further than that. So mm -hmm. one source is Herbert Marcuse. So Marcuse's One Dimensional Man is one of the most famous books that mounts a, well, what's often thought to be a critique of technology. Mm -hmm. And so much as Alul did uh, before him, he argues that the problem with modern society is that we we have what he calls a, a one-dimensional universe of discourse that assigns priority to specific kinds of rationality and efficiency. It's a society of means over ends, to use Ellul's kind of terminology. Mm -hmm. And so Marcuse is a critic of this kind of technological society. But at the very end of the book, he says, well, if only we could think about technology in the right way, if only would we could escape 
the constraints of this one-dimensional discourse. If only we could set up some, well, negative or two-dimensional or normative discourse that we could use to direct technology, then it could liberate us from toil. He, he appears to be a radical critic of technology if you read only some parts of the book. Mm. But once you get to the end, you see that he's actually a radical optimist about technology. So Marcuse, I think, is often wrongly placed on the critical side of the technological ledger. So those are a few thoughts about accelerationism and where it comes from. I think, it, yeah, of course, it's also there in a, uh, in, you know, a nascent form in Marx himself. Mm -hmm. The idea that techno technology is a force for liberation is certainly there in Marx. I think as, uh, you know, as Alul seems to talk about in Technique and State, that uh, Marx is a little uh, naive about his approach and that uh, they're, that, you know, like capitalism and socialism, as he understands it, are both technological systems in the way that they were approaching it. Is that right? Yeah. So Alul says it, it doesn't matter who controls the means of production. That's not the central issue. So Alul says, and he, he looked at both sides of, of the Cold War and saw basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. So he looked at the US and its assembly lines and its consumerism and its bureaucracies. And he looked at the Soviet Union and said, well, maybe you have less consumerism, but you still have the assembly lines and the bureaucracies. Mm -hmm. These are both technological societies. The, the differences in ideology and economic doctrine are not as significant as they seem. So Elul was decidedly less optimistic about the possibility of accelerating past our current circumstance. So like, uh, as far as, uh, thanks for that clarification. As far as uh, accelerationism goes, I, I guess um, you've enlightened me a little bit because I've, I've heard about it a lot in the context of like, an approach for an anti-tech approach that's possible, uh, an accelerationist approach that uh, I, I think it, from what I've heard, it takes this idea um, that Kaczynski mentions of, and uh, I don't, I guess I don't know if Alul mentions it, of like the inevitable collapse of the system that it's kind of driving itself downward even without us trying to. And so like, it's our, you know, job as revolutionaries to, you know, wait until it's weak enough to strike that final blow kind of. Um, and so like, I guess I've heard of that there are some people that take this like accelerationist approach where they see that there's inevitable collapse and they try to drive, they want to drive the system to collapse faster, um, by supporting it, I guess. Um, I don't know. Have you, have you heard about this kind of approach or am I just like off base on what accelerationism is? No, I think that is accelerationist. Okay. In, in some sense. And I think it's already there in industrial society and its future. So there is a passage where Kaczynski says that the anti-tech movement should be in favor of trade agreements. So he says we should support the whatever he's talking about, the World Trade Organization or the general agreement on tariffs and trade, because in order to bring down the system in one fell swoop, you have to tightly integrate the system, make sure it's stitched together. 
So the, the problem with the system as he saw it then was that it wasn't tightly coupled enough, as he, as he says in anti-tech revolution. Mm -hmm. When you stitch it together, when you make all the parts dependent on all the others, as you do through trade, then it becomes easier to make the whole thing collapse at once. Mm -hmm. So there he is putting forth a very accelerationist idea that in order to bring, up, bring about the collapse, you have to bring about the development of the system. Right. Or bring about those developments that will lead to like a weakening of the system or making it more vulnerable. So to speak. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And this, this idea, now that I think on it, is, well, it's not quite there in the same prescriptive form in Alul, but the idea that the development of the system makes it more fragile is definitely there in Alul. Yeah, so, his, his idea of monism, right? That's right. Yeah, monism is definitely there. Yeah. But in, in his later book, uh, The Technological Bluff, his 1988 book, uh, he, there's a section near the end about fragility and how the development of the system uh, appears to make the system stronger, but actually makes it more fragile. And there's a part that, uh, well, seems to anticipate Kaczynski's hit where it hurts, where he says, well, look at all these power lines. The more of them there are, the more of these high tension wires there are, the more things there are to attack. We'd be fools to think that someone won't eventually try to attack them. <laughs> and so, uh, Elul is well aware of this, but Elul doesn't write in the same prescriptive way, and he doesn't he doesn't tell us that we should go out there and attack the system. Right. It's not Elul's game at all. I guess uh, you kind of you know talking about this monistic quality of technology and tying it together to weaken it. Um, I guess it does kind of bring to light for me this uh, possibly an issue with uh, Kaczynski's taking his revolutionary ideas from history because you know I, I think about it like the you know the French Revolution and the um, uh, uh, all the historical revolutions that he's drawing from um, you know these were revolutions against human systems um, that I guess I don't, I don't think there is a case of a global uh, network that is trying to be revolted against like um, it's it seems that in order to fight against a global system like Kaczynski wants to, you need to have uh, a global revolution, right? And, uh, but I don't know, how does this, uh, how would that uh, gel with his idea that, oh, the revolution has to be like a small minority group, right? That, that is uh, strongly focused and able to uh, efficiently like uh, get things done. Uh, have you, have you Thought about this earlier like i don't know do, do you uh do you side with alul or kaczynski on that idea of like uh um drawing from history in order to figure out what to do now well let me let me take the second point first mm -hmm. so i think what kaczynski has in mind is a set of attacks on central pieces of infrastructure where Breaking down one part will inevitably break down the rest. So think about the global payment system. Mm -hmm. If you can take out some a particular node in some networks that happens to be located in you know, the United States or Europe, 
you could potentially cause havoc globally. So he thinks that the system is coupled together enough that if you attack one part of it, the dominoes will fall. And, and this is, I think, how he reconciles his claim that the revolution has to be led by a small group of people with his claim that it has to be global. He thinks that it hit, hit where it hurts, again, is the decisive uh, essay here. Mm -hmm. This helps to explain what he's on about. So on the question of whether the anti-tech revolution can be modeled on history, well, I, I think Elul completely preempted Kaczynski's argument here. So Elul uh, seemed to anticipate that someone like Kaczynski would eventually come along and read the technological society and then think that a violent revolution was the answer. And the purpose of autopsy revolution is exactly to say that this kind of revolution is dead. It doesn't work anymore. And he says, you know, whether you're talking about the French or the Russian revolution or any of the later revolutions, these are all essentially the same kind of revolution. These are, th these all follow the same model of revolution, which is based on Marx's extrapolation from the French revolution. Mm -hmm. This is a historically specific idea of revolution that just doesn't travel, is what he's trying to say. And so whether you're talking about a revolution against technology or a revolution against a government, Elul just doesn't think it works the same way anymore. Why, why, why specifically does it not work anymore? Well, the system is, well, let's, let's take why doesn't it work against technology mm -hmm. first, and then why doesn't it work against a particular government? So it doesn't work against technology uh, because technology it depends on modes of thought, a mindset. This is the point I mentioned before, mm -hmm. that you can overthrow a group of people uh, violently on the model of the French or Russian revolutions, but you can't overthrow a system of thought. Mm -hmm. you know, violence can change governments, but it can't change minds. Yeah, That's essentially what he has in mind. And he, he thinks that even for overthrowing governments, the old model doesn't really apply. At that point is admittedly a little more opaque, but the, the idea seems to be that a true revolution has to cut against the tide of history. So history has a certain direction to it. You can predict what, with some accuracy what, you know, all of the things being equal, the first, or the next uh, 20 or 30 years will bring. You, know, you can imagine what it would be like for our society to, to develop in this direction over another 20 years. And he says, a real revolution cuts against the tide of, of history. So this is what makes it revolutionary rather than just reformist or an acceleration toward the same. Mm -hmm. And he says, what's peculiar about the French Revolution is that it pushes with the tide of history. So it was pushing in the direction of power. So the, the, the monarchy and the 
aristocracy were losing ground economically to you know, new landholders and new economic interests in France. And all the revolution did was push in the direction that the economic forces were already pushing, which was against the monarchy, against the old feudal power structures. So Marx's mistake, Alul thinks, is to, is to think, first of all, that revolutions have to be class-based. And second of all, that they push in the direction of history. So, you know, in Marxist thought, revolutions are, well, the, the locomotive of history is the, the kind of catchphrase. Hmm. So Elul doesn't think any true revolution in our world uh, can take the model of the French or Russian revolutions because a true revolution has to cut against the probable course of history. That seems to be what makes a revolution in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's just less possible now to cut against it. Well, I think the question for Alul is how to cut against it. Mm-hmm. And the, the way to cut against it is certainly not to be strategic and calculating. The way to cut against it is not, is not to develop a revolutionary doctrine and refine revolutionary tactics. That's just to reinforce technique for a little. The way to cut against it, the way to defy the course of history, the way to have any real freedom is to reject the habits of thought and of action that have been instilled in us, to act in a deliberately non-technical, inefficient, contemplative way. I guess I'll, I want to ask you, where uh, do you see any kind of like hope for that uh, for that method of uh, getting rid of the system or um, or do you think that we're just getting deeper and deeper uh, uh, sucked into it? Like, I, I guess for the next generation of people, do you see any kind of uh, hope there or any kind of at least in terms of how people are thinking about technology? Because I don't know. I, I I feel like I see a little bit. You know, we've noticed a resurgence of Kaczynski in popular culture now. We have like these Netflix documentaries and stuff, and um, people seem to be whether it was like a result of the pandemic or just life in general. It seems like some people, or at least more people, um, are getting disillusioned uh, with the system. But um, even those, some of those people are, uh, I guess not really focusing on the right things that are wrong with uh, society right now. A lot of people are focused on like human rights issues and things like that. And um, not seeing how a lot of these social issues that we face now are kind of a result of the technological issues that we're facing. Um, so I guess, I don't know, what, what do you, th- do you, do you have hope for the future or do you think that we're just getting further uh, sucked in? What do you think? Well, I think you're right that a lot more people are interested in the problem of technology. And you see a lot of discussion about critics of technology nowadays. You know, the one who is, I think, most trendy right now, and more than trendy, I think, I think there's a really deep engagement with him, is Ivan Illich, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with him. Yeah. So Illich is someone who was pretty heavily influenced by Lul, and he's having his day in the sun now because he seems so much more prophetic in retrospect. Mm-hmm. So 
I think there are reasons for hope. And I'm not sure that I'd say all is lost. Uh, it's, it's a good question. Yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's hard. You know, we're, uh, uh, we like to think that hope is not lost. That It seems that a lot of people that uh, are even aware of these ideas or are willing to engage with, uh, um, you know, engage in the discussion uh, are kind of nihilistic about the whole thing. Like they, they notice uh, all of the issues that we're facing, how a lot of these result from the type of society that we've created and um, all the technology that we embrace day to day. And that we now, you know, these are our new, this is the new church <laughs> kind of. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we attend mass uh, every waking hour. And so, yeah, you know, I, I, we want to try to fight against that nihilism. Um, but it's hard when even like uh, the people that are most vehemently against it, uh, you know, disagree about what to actually do about it and what the best course of action is. And so a lot of people, I guess, get this, um, they descend into nihilism where they think, well, there's nothing that I can do about it. So I'll just submit myself in, in uh, uh, you know, in lieu of better options. Um, I well, guess. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose there are two forms of, well, maybe, maybe we can distinguish here between nihilism and fatalism. Mm, yes. Uh, what you're describing seems to be the fatalistic response. Right. We can't do anything about the system, so let's just live our lives. Mm -hmm. So you recognize all the problems, and then you just go watch some Netflix. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, a pretty common response. The less common one, maybe more worrying response, is ITS. Mm, yeah. So I, I discuss ITS, the Mexican terrorist group, in my article. And ITS is heavily inspired by Kaczynski, but differs in one absolutely crucial respect. So Kaczynski still has hope. Kaczynski is actually a surprisingly optimistic thinker in the end. Mm -hmm. He's, an, well, an incredibly brutal thinker, but he still has hope that the technological system can be overthrown and that humanity can regain its ground. Yeah, he values guess, human dignity, and human freedom. He he loves humanity, so to speak. Like, well, he that's that's what's remarkable about him. He he actually does, at some level, love humanity, mm -hmm. of a particular kind. Yeah. Uh, now he doesn't love people he thinks have given up their humanity by becoming cogs in the technological system. He thinks that they're legitimate targets for violence as soon as they have. They've they've given up their wild nature and gone into some technical profession. So he thinks that the, the dignity of the human being is revocable, but it's nevertheless there to start with. Now, ITS uh, doesn't think revolution is possible. So ITS says to, in response to Kaczynski, that revolution itself is a leftist concept. Hmm. So ITS says, Kaczynski was right in his critique of leftism. So it, he's, he's right that leftist social activism is a distraction from the problem of technology. It's just a palliative. It makes people feel better, but it doesn't actually do anything. So ITS accepts that, but goes one step further and says, well, the French Revolution is the model for Kaczynski's revolution. Mm -hmm. And that idea of revolution is thoroughly leftist. 
So ITS says to Kaczynski, you're a leftist. Kaczynski's response is, well, if you're, if you're in nothing but despair, if you don't think any, anything can be done about the technological system, if you're willing to throw up your hands and have this fatalistic or worse nihilistic attitude, which says that all we can do is use violence to strike against the system, like wild animals striking back against the predator, <laughs> then you're the leftists. So he says, one of the salient psychological features of leftists is feelings of inferiority, a sense of powerlessness, a sense of defeatism. And he says, that's ITS. They're the most defeatist of all. So they abandoned the concept of revolution and he is absolutely unwilling to do that. That is the essential difference between him and ITS. I, I don't really, uh, you know, personally, I don't know a whole lot about ITS apart from what I've read about in your article. Um, what is their like goal? Like, do they have a goal or are they just totally like the revolution is impossible. The system's killing everyone. We're just going to lash out. Like, do, do they have uh, an objective in mind or do, what do you think? Well, they don't have a strategic goal or an ultimate end. Right. The purpose of their violence is essentially liberation. So they, they subscribe to the idea of violence as liberation that you see in you know, various thinkers like uh, J.P. Sartre or uh, Frantz Fanon. Uh, the idea that violence reaffirms our humanity. Mm-hmm. It's not a means to an end. It's almost an end of itself. And so the ITS's idea is that, and this, this part's taken from Kaczynski, that human beings are wild by nature or uh, violent by nature, that mm-hmm. wild human nature is violent, that you know, hunter-gatherer societies are not peaceful. They are, well, collections of little warlike tribes. And so one way to cast off the shackles of, uh, of socialization and civilization, the ultimate form of defiance against it, is to break the fundamental norm against violence. That's the way to reclaim your wildness. That's, to, that's the way you can be a wild human being, even in the midst of a technological society. And so Kaczynski agrees that human beings are wild by nature, but he sees the purpose of violence as fundamentally different. He doesn't think violence is inherently liberating. That's not the point for him. Violence has to be used strategically to overthrow the system. For ITS, violence has a personal psychological liberating function. Would you say, but for Kaczynski, the violence is more, at least in the natural state, violence is for you know, it's used in the means of uh, um, fulfilling the power process. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So violence against a deer to to kill it, violence against someone who attacks you, violence against, for that matter, someone who has food that you need. Yeah. But not just violence for violence sake, for the sake of like, violence isn't the thing that gets you that feeling of uh, freedom, I guess. It's it's fulfilling the power process as a whole, right? Yeah, that's right. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So I, who, what do you, do, who do you think is the leftist here between ITS and Kaczynski? And the Soviet <laughs> I don't think I'm, uh, I, I don't think I'm well placed to adjudicate this dispute. I just think it's an, an interesting dispute. Mm-hmm. And I think this is going to be an important fault line in the anti-tech movement in years to come. I think the fault line between ITS and Kaczynski about whether the technological system can be really overthrown or whether personal liberation is really the goal, that is a crucial fault line. The other crucial fault line is between Kaczynski and Alul about whether uh, the technological system as a material apparatus is the thing that we're trying to overthrow or whether uh, technique as a mindset is really the target of the revolution. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I I think that that's a debate that that debate between is it you know is it this external system thing or is it the way that we're thinking about the world and engaging with it and you know what's the real enemy? I think that's something that I struggle with a lot and that we as groups struggle with. Um, and you know, I, I think one of the worries that I have about taking this you know, external system approach, that that's the thing that we're attacking is that, you know, I worry that if we overlook some of the um, psychological aspects uh, and like the, uh, you know, the mindset that Ilul is talking about, if we overlook that too much, then if we do end up like succeeding and taking down the system and then, yay, we're in a post-technological society, um, if we don't have the right mindset established at that point, or at least the right kind of culture in place, then in my eyes, nothing's going to stop the system from just growing again and coming back. It's, I don't know. It seems to, I, I feel more sympathetic towards the Lul's perspective because I think that, you know, we act based on what we believe. And if we believe, or if we think in a certain way, that's going to reflect in our treatment of the external world and, um, and, so yeah, I think that that's, I don't know, do you, do you have a, um, a position or idea or like, uh, what do you think is most important? Which between Kaczynski and Alul, do you think you uh, are more sympathetic to? Well, I, I'm not sure I'm sympathetic to either here, but mm-hmm. uh, I think the, the crux of the disagreement comes down to the old debate between idealists and materialists. Yeah. So this is an old social scientific debate that is crucial here. So in this way, Kaczynski is more of a Marxist than Alul is. Mm -hmm. Kaczynski thinks that material factors ultimately drive the course of history. Alul thinks that ideational factors, ideas, uh, are in some cases decisive. So he thinks that, well, as, as I said before, that the Greek division between science and technique was a decisive barrier against the development of technology. And later that Christianity was a decisive barrier against the development of technology. In, in, in both of those cases, Elul is relying on an, an idea or a set of ideas to explain the course of history. Mm-hmm. And Kaczynski, I think, is a materialist. Mm-hmm. That's yet another fundamental difference between them. Yeah. I guess uh, another another thing I wanted to ask you about then um, is in relation to um, the power process as Kaczynski develops the four steps. Um, so you mentioned that 
you know, he takes, uh, you know, the basic ideas of maladaption um, uh, from Alul and he um, kind of, he, that kind of constructs that those first two parts of the power process, right? And then he uh, uses other authors um, like Morris and uh, uh, Seligman, how, how, how would you pronounce that? Seligman, Seligman yeah, yeah. Seligman um, to kind of develop the, the, the second two attainment and autonomy. Um, can, can you, uh, I don't know, can you talk a little bit about uh, these other two authors and how they helped him develop his ideas in the end? Okay, so let's start with what the power process is. Okay. So power process for Kaczynski is the process of using your own physical and mental abilities, your own physical and mental power to uh, attain the necessities of life. That's essentially what it is. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, as he puts it in kind of psych psychologized language, the power process has four parts, uh, goal, effort, uh, attainment of goal and autonomy. In order to go through the power process, you have to use effort to attain a goal autonomously. Mm -hmm. So the idea that human beings need goals that require effort comes from Desmond Morris uh, in this 1969 book called The Human Zoo. Mm -hmm. This is also where the idea of the biological mismatch comes from. So just some background on Morris before I get into uh, where the first part of the power process comes from. Uh, Morris was curator of mammals at the London Zoo in I think the 50s or 60s. And one of the things he noticed was that zoo animals suffer from many of the same psychological problems that human beings suffer from in modern society. So eating disorders, uh, anxiety, depression, insomnia, you know, tick disorders, they pull out their feathers or their fur. Mm -hmm. All of these things are, well, analogous to, or precisely the same even as problems that human beings suffer from in modern society. So uh, Morris's central claim in this book is that, that you know, the, the city is not an urban jungle. It's not at all like a jungle. It's actually like a zoo. You know, it's like a zoo in the sense that it requires minimal effort to attain the necessities of life. All you have to do is do a little trick once in a while and the zookeeper will feed you. Mm -hmm. So Morris says one of the problems with keeping animals in zoos is that in the wild, uh, omnivores like you know, raccoons, dogs, bears, animals of that sort, they have a psychological need to expend effort uh, in order to attain their goals. As he says, they have a certain need for stimulation. Uh, and so Morris puts a label on this. He says, these animals have a need for the stimulus struggle. They need to, uh, in order to get their food or to, to get water or whatever, they have to expend effort in some varied and interesting way in order to get what they want. So they have a need for stimulation. And Kaczynski translates Morris's idea of the stimulus struggle into his uh, language of goals and effort. So the first part of the, the power process is derived from Morris's idea of the stimulus struggle. Mm -hmm. And the second part comes from Martin Seligman, who's a famous 
American psychologist who's most famous for the idea of learned helplessness. So the basic idea of learned helplessness is that when an animal uh, is uh, subject to stimuli that it can't escape from, when it feels like it can't control its own fate, its morale can be broken. So in uh, Morris's famous experiment, uh, he put a dog in a box and subjected it to shocks that it was incapable of getting away from. Mm -hmm. So he'd shock the dog over and over again, and the dog would have to sit there and take it. And then when he would give the dog an opportunity later to escape from the shocks, you know, the dog, for instance, could move to the other side of the box and get away from the shocks. You know, a little opening would be there for the dog to run away. And many of the dogs just lay down and whined. They didn't even try to get away. So when, when the dogs were subjected repeatedly to stimuli that were beyond their control, they became helpless. It broke their morale. It's kind of so like a fatalistic perspective, that kind of like fatalistic attitude that we were talking about earlier. Would you say it's analogous exactly. to that? So this is, this is uh, part of what's going on in Kaczynski's diagnosis of the pathologies of the left. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can, we can get onto that in a, in a moment, but as for the second and third parts of the power process. Mm -hmm. So if, if you fail to attain your goals repeatedly, if it seems like what you do has no effect on the desired outcomes, whether it's in you know, studying for a, a class or whether it's you know, practicing a sport or whatever. If you put in effort and don't attain the desired result repeatedly, you start to feel helpless. You'll stop trying because it seems like the result you get is independent of the effort you put in. Right. That's the essence of, of helplessness. So Kaczynski says, human beings don't just need goals that require effort. They don't just need what Morris calls stimulation. They need to attain their goals with a reasonable rate of success or else they'll start to feel helpless. And in addition, they need, or at least most human beings need some autonomy in the pursuit of goals. They need to feel like they're not just going through, through the motions, you know, uh, not just following rules that someone else has set down. They also need to be able to make their own decisions about how to pursue their goals. So in short, uh, the idea that human beings need goals that require effort comes from Morris's idea of the stimulus struggle. And the idea that human beings need to attain their goals at a reasonable rate and to pursue them autonomously. And the, the evidence for the influence of these two authors is I think one of the most interesting things in the archive. So uh, if you read Industrial Society and Its Future, you see that it has a full slate of footnotes. So he cites lots of sources in the manifesto, but he doesn't cite his most important sources. Yeah, He doesn't cite Alul, he doesn't cite Morris, he doesn't cite Seligman. And the reason is that he had corresponded with academics he admired while he was in Montana. He had sent letters to them in his own name. And if he had cited them, that would have left clues for the FBI. 
If he had cited Seligman, for example, the FBI would have gone straight to Seligman and said, have you ever received letters that looked something like this manifesto? Mm -hmm. And in all probability, they would have turned up letters from Kaczynski. So he doesn't tell you where his most important ideas came from. He deliberately conceals his sources mm -hmm. for his own protection. So one of the things I found in the archive was a secret set of footnotes to the manifesto where he cites a whole host of sources that he concealed in the public version. And right after the section on the power process, he cites uh, Martin Seligman's book from 1975 uh, called Helplessness. And uh, then when he's talking about the psychological problems that human beings suffer from in modern society, he cites Desmond Morris's The Human Zoo. And both of those sources are, ideas from both of those sources are plastered all over the manifesto. So after Elul, Morris and Seligman are his two most important sources. And uh, no one seems to have discovered that. You know, people were sort of aware of uh, Elul's influence on Kaczynski, but there was really nothing about uh, Morris or Seligman. Yeah, that's really interesting. It seems, it's like you found this golden nugget that nobody else had discovered yet uh, and, and just like buried in the ancient footnotes at the library. Um, it had been sitting there for 20 years. Yeah. And lots of people had looked at his correspondence, but no one had bothered to look at uh, his notes on all these academic articles. Mm -hmm. the, the, re the apparently dry and boring stuff is actually by far the most interesting. Yeah, isn't yeah, that the, so There's lots the of case. journalists who go there just to look at salacious letters but <laughs> and just make cheap news stories out of it. But no one has really used that archive for a genuine scholarly purpose. Yeah. And it's still a goldmine. And I encourage people to go look for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, were, were you able, I, I guess, uh, um, just a practical question uh did you have to go there physically to look at them or was there some like uh online ability for you to check them check out these sources i did go there physically okay yeah. so i went in 2019 and i'm glad i did because uh, right now there's no way i could even enter the country <laughs> yeah right so uh yeah i i went there and i spent days and days just digging through boxes there's about 100 file boxes of material Wow. This massive amount of material. It would take at least months to look through all the relevant material on Kaczynski. Wow. But it's a, a gold mine for historians, political theorists, anyone else, really. There's, there's so much yet to be written on this subject. Yeah. And then I guess uh, kind of the, um, you know, the, mood towards the end of your article it gives me the feeling of uh that you have the impression that you know and these anti-tech ideas are only going to become more prevalent that this drama between ITS and Kaczynski's ideas are uh you know they're going to be become very important as uh, technology advances further and further and I guess ideally people become more disillusioned and start seeing the issues and start wanting to actually address them um and so yeah I, I guess uh do you see um, do you see a revolution in our future, or do you uh, think that I don't know? I, uh, 
No, that that is a great question. Yeah. So I'm not sure I see a revolution, but I do see an increasingly large and formidable anti-tech movement growing up. And right. I think I think it will be less of a unified movement and more of a family of movements. Mm-hmm. So what I think is going to happen is that you'll have an increasing number of people who are opposed to modern technology in some form or another, but coming at it from different angles. You'll have lots of people who are opposed to technology for broadly green reasons. People who are opposed to technology because they think it's a disaster for the environment. Then you'll have people like Kaczynski who oppose technology primarily because they think it's a disaster for humanity. So they either think it will uh, deprive us of our dignity or humanity, that it will cause more and more severe psychological problems, that it will destroy the planet or the human race. Think of existential risk. You know, lots of people will come at this from an existential risk angle and say that technology is just not worth the risk of destroying everything. The convenience is just not worth the risk of obliterating ourselves and everything else, uh, everything else with us. Then I think there's going to be a more conservative wing of the uh, anti-tech movements, which will oppose modern technology for, well, I guess you might say bioconservative reasons. So you'll have lots of opposition to genetic engineering that will be based on a kind of ick factor, uh, an objection to messing with the genes of, of living things that's, I guess, sort of analogous to uh, you know, pro-life sentiments. There will be a kind of neo-vitalism, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. that objects to any tinkering with the composition of our bodies or the bodies of other things, then I think there might be a more, uh, well, uh, I guess if you want to use colors, uh, if, if we have a blue version in the conservative faction and a green version in the environmental faction, and uh, kind of colorless version or a gray version in the Kaczynski faction. I think we're going to have a red version as well. You'll have lots of people who will oppose technology because they think it's an it's it's a force that inherently increases economic inequality. Mm. So you know you see this now with opposition to Amazon, Google, Facebook, and so on. You'll have uh, a kind of uh, maybe anti-tech socialism, something like that, techno-skeptic socialism. I think that's a predictable direction for this. And then I think you'll have a a more anarchist faction of the anti-tech movement that is mostly concerned with the centralization of power in the hands of the state, with the uh, increasing surveillance that technology makes possible. So in short, I think people will come at anti-tech from probably dozens of different angles. Uh, Another another angle that I didn't mention, but I think is important uh, is, well, a flat out conspiratorial angle. There will be some people like the people who've been burning uh, 5G towers 
I'm not sure if you've heard of this. Yeah, yeah. But across Europe, there have been people uh, just catching fire to 5G towers. I'm not sure exactly what the conspiracy is, but there's some belief that these 5G towers are responsible for disease, possibly responsible for COVID. Yeah, that's what yeah. I've been hearing, yeah. So it, it's amazing how many of these things have been burned to the ground. It's remarkable, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I joked when this started happening that you know the, the Luddites have come back to, to the Midlands of England. Yeah. But, and I also think there's just going to be a, a kind of juvenile destructive angle to this too. You know, we, we know how little reverence the average kid has for machines. You know, kids, yeah. you think of how kids throw snowballs. Well, in my neck of the woods, snowballs and other, other people's domain, more, more like rocks and <laughs> cars. Yeah. Kids see something that only adults can, can use and have a, a desire to mess with it. And I don't think this goes away with age. You look at how often people mess with self-driving cars. So yeah, th- this has been a real problem in some places where they've tried to test them. People will spray paint them and throw stuff at them and let the air out of the tires, just mess with them. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's going to be a, a more impish wing of this too that doesn't really have an ideology attached to it. But in, in Alul's term, it will be more revolt than revolution so interesting yeah in short i, I think I, I i don't think the anti-tech movement will be a unified thing and part of what makes anti-tech i think so powerful so ideologically powerful and one of the reasons i think that that anti-tech will be one of the major political forces in the next century is precisely this ideological convergence People will be anti-tech for radically different reasons. Do you think that, um, I don't know, I, 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 th- I would say I agree with you. It seems to be that it's turning into more of like a, a movement. Maybe it's a consequence of like just the mass amount of people that exist that like the idea of creating a centralized movement like this seems just kind of practically untenable, at least considering like just the different mindsets that everybody's coming from and the different things that people want to focus on in, in terms of like what technology is doing. Um, but, uh, it also sounds a little bit worrying because I don't know, isn't this kind of one of Kaczynski's uh, big worries about leftists is that like they'll kind of create these pseudo revolutionary movements that end up taking power away from the people that are actually just focusing on the problem of technology i guess um do you do, are you concerned at all about groups that are coming at it from all different angles because it's uh, the way that i'm interpreting kaczynski he wants all these people to be f- very focused on just the technological problem but do you think that there's a way to be focused on the tech problem from multiple angles or that that is the same kind of leftist uh conspiracy that he's worried about I think Kaczynski even underestimates the problem here. So mm. I think many of these groups will be exclusively focused on the problem of technology, mm-hmm. but they will not agree on what the problem is. Mm. So it, you know, even if everyone is focused on the problem of technology, that doesn't really demonstrate any fundamental agreement. 
what is the problem of technology anyway? Yeah. Is it that technology dehumanizes us? Is it existential risk? Is it that it will destroy the environment? Is it that it makes us more unequal? What is it? What exactly is the problem of technology in the first place? And I think there will be, well, surprising agreement between some of the factions of the anti-tech movement, despite the fact that they think about the problem differently. I think there will at least be some strategic alliance between them. They'll, and even where there's not, they'll tend to push in the same direction. Right. Kind of like a, um, oh, what's the analogy that I heard? Like a um, something rolling down a hill and it's kind of like moving in different directions, but overall it's moving downhill kind of. So it may meander a little bit, but um, they're unified in this kind of way. Um, I guess uh, another question that I've, we've been, liking to ask people um or that we've been wanting to ask people is i guess uh your view on whether um like no tech or some tech uh, i guess one of the big divisions that we've kind of noticed within the anti-tech culture i guess you could call it right now is um there's a lot of people that are advocating for complete elimination and like going all the way back to primitive society to like hunter gatherer society right and that that's where um that's where humanity was evolutionarily like fit best and that was a sustainable type of culture and society and so that's what we should try to get back to um maybe it's even wrong to call it a society um but and then there are some people that think that no we just need to dial it back we need to get back to like the state of the ancient greeks where like they had technology but in a very limited way um i, I guess do you have a, a vision for uh how far back we should be going or you know maybe maybe it's wrong to think about it as going back to you know we're going forward but um how do you see a space for technology in the future i guess is my question well, do you think we I don't have a particular I don't have a particular view on this, but okay. I can discuss some of the ones that I think are salient right now. Yeah. So on one hand, on or on one pole, I guess you could say, you have anarcho-primitivists. You have mm -hmm. people like John Zerzan who want to go back to before language. Right. They think we made a wrong turn when our relation to the world became mediated through language. What they want is a perfectly authentic relation to the world, which can only be direct and unmediated. Mm -hmm. It's only without symbolism, without language, that we can truly relate to the world in an authentic way. Mm -hmm. And they think the, the, well, ultimate wrong turn was the agricultural revolution, not the industrial revolution. So it started 10,000 years ago with the agricultural revolution. And when we domesticated animals, we also domesticated ourselves. That's when civilization really began. Mm -hmm. So the hunter-gatherer ideal is their ideal. I think it's also at some level Kaczynski's ideal. So he thinks that hunter-gatherers struggle for survival is the perfect fulfillment of the power process. That's what the power process really is. It's the psychology of the hunter-gatherer's struggle for survival translated into the language of modern behavioral or cognitive psychology. 
But he also disagrees with the anarcho-primitivists in some key ways, doesn't he? Oh, certainly, yeah. So he, he's incredibly critical of anarcho-primitivists. He thinks that they idealize uh, hunter-gatherer societies and project leftist values onto them. Hmm. So Kaczynski says, look, the idea that people just sat around plucking fruit out of trees and you know, singing kumbaya and playing ring around the rosy <laughs> And, you know, without any racism or sexism or xenophobia or violence, it's just absurd. Mm -hmm. Hunter-gatherer societies were sexist, they were racist, they were xenophobic, and they were certainly violent. And living in them was a hell of a lot of hard work. Mm -hmm. The idea that people had leisure in these societies is just just false. Mm -hmm. So he has this essay where uh, it's called uh, uh, The Truth About Primitive Life. And Mm -hmm. He doesn't say it, though he does say it in some letters, that it's intended to be a takedown of John Zerzan. It's a takedown of anarcho-primitivism. And so he argues that, well, even if uh, living like a hunter-gatherer is the ideal, they don't know what it was actually like to live like a Mm hunter-gatherer. They've been duped by the leftish anthropologists who portray primitive societies as little gardens of Eden. Right. Okay, so then then we have Kaczynski who says, uh, well, the Industrial Revolution was really the wrong turn. There's no way of going back to uh, a society without agriculture. Some small-scale agriculture is pretty much inevitable, and we can't predict what the post-collapse society is going to look like anyway. Mm-hmm. So we just have to bring it down and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't have a particular ideal for what the post-collapse society is going to look like. He doesn't tell us to wind back the clock only so far, or at least so far. He doesn't think we can decide how far back to, to wind the clock because one of his, well, central claims derived from Alul is that the development of a a society can never be subject to rational control. You can't control the development of technology. There's no point. You might be able to help precipitate a collapse, but that is the only way in which we can control it. So the hunter-gatherer ideal is closest to our, well, genetic heritage, and for that reason, probably the most satisfying, but he thinks any more primitive mode of existence, any mode of existence in which we don't have the exponential growth of technology is preferable to what we have now. Mm-hmm. Then we have uh, David Skirbina, mm-hmm. who says, well, we should roll back technology to, well, a state where we have some form of high culture. We have a developed intellectual culture and, you know, and sophisticated forms of art and language. So he doesn't want to go back as far as hunter-gatherers or as far back as John Zerzan wants to go. Mm -hmm. But he wants to go back far enough so that we're not too close to the Industrial Revolution. Right. We're not too close to the takeoff point. We have a bit of a temporal buffer between us and and the acceleration that began when we Mm -hmm. developed technology. Now, I don't remember exactly which century he says. Is it the 12th century, maybe? 
Yes, I think it was the 12th century. So that idea is interesting, but it requires us to reject one of Kaczynski's central premises and one of Alul's, which is that the development of technology can never be subject to rational control. Mm-hmm. In order to engage in a deliberate retrenchment or reversal, we have to be able to control technology at some level. Yeah. It has to be possible to guide the system with human intent. And this is precisely what Kaczynski and Alul deny. So in order to even have this debate about how far back to go, uh, you have to reject a crucial piece of the argument that Alul sets forth. Now, there's also another position here. The assumption is that people who are critical of technology want to go back. I don't think that's true. And I don't think that's a very helpful way of thinking about it. Why should we talk about going back? It's, well, uh, it assumes Impossible. that we can, yeah. it assumes that we can go back. And in a literal sense, that's false. But I think in a more fundamental sense, that's also false. You know, the, uh, the thinker who's helpful here, I think, is Ivan Illich. Mm-hmm. So Ivan Illich says, look, I'm not trying to go back. I'm trying to create uh, a more convivial, he says, future. He's trying to create a future where human beings are uh, have a, a set of technologies that is more suited to their needs and aptitudes. Mm-hmm. So I think a future-oriented way of thinking about it is a lot more helpful. Instead of thinking about how far to go back, Think about what the future should look like. Mm -hmm. The danger of this is utopianism. Mm. Now, the thing about the past, to think about thinking in terms of the past, is that it at least does constrain us in a certain way and prevent us from being completely fanciful. So it's true that if if a state of affairs has existed, it is at least possible. Mm -hmm. But... If we think purely about the future, there's a tendency for us to indulge in grand designs about what the future should be. And then we're right back in the out of the pot or out of the frying pan into the fire, so to speak. That's right. It's mm-hmm. exactly right. So we have to think about some form of realistic future. And I think that's one of the purposes, one of the fundamental purposes of political theory to think about some realistic future, not to be hemmed in by our current prejudices, right? but not to indulge in, well, utopian speculation either. We have to be between those two poles. One like kind of a closing question that I like to ask people is um, what, uh, you know, for someone that is new to these ideas that maybe just discovered Kaczynski via a Netflix documentary or something and uh, is like looking around for more information um, or, or um, rather that they, uh, you know, see some of the truth in his arguments as we have. Um, do you have any kind of advice that you would give someone as to like how they can go about either supporting this movement um, or just bettering their own life or trying to better their community? Like, um, I, I guess, are there any steps that you've taken in your own life or things that you would recommend for other people to 
do in order to try to bring about a better future for us? Well, I'm just going to recommend that anyone who reads Kaczynski and is persuaded by some of the arguments, go and read Elul. Read mm -hmm. Elul's book, The Technological Society. It's much more demanding than Kaczynski. Yes. Well, that's <laughs> uh, it's a bit thicker, yeah. <laughs> so it's what, 450, 460 pages, something like Including that? Including the endnotes, yeah. About, about yeah. that. Yeah, about 450. Okay. Well, it's it's a thick tome for sure. Mm -hmm. But it's, well, it will give you some insight into where Kaczynski got his ideas, but it will also give you some interesting counterpoints to Kaczynski. Mm -hmm. And you know, lots of people who've read Kaczynski project him back onto Alul far too much. Mm -hmm. But if you read him as a different thinker, if you read him as an interlocutor, Kaczynski. I think he's in, he's as much an antidote to Kaczynski as he is an, an influence on him. So it, I'd, I'd recommend that you read them alongside each other. Don't just read everything Kaczynski has written. Mm -hmm. Branch out, read someone else. Kaczynski is tempting because he's so easy to read. He is, yeah. He's incredibly clear. He's incredibly precise and concise. You know, he's he he gives you the analytic philosopher's version of anti-tech. But don't just stop with Kaczynski. And also read some of the stuff that you don't think you'll like. Like know your enemy is a good motto here. Mm -hmm. Read the accelerationist manifesto. Mm -hmm. Read Ray Kurzweil, the futurist. Mm -hmm. Read Kevin Kelly. So I think it was John Stuart Mill who said, you know, the I'm paraphrasing, uh, he who knows only one side of the argument knows nothing of that, or he who knows only his own side of the argument. So read widely about tech. It's tempting when you find a, a text that resonates with you to just read everything by that author. But don't read Kaczynski in isolation yeah. is That's my right. best advice. That, that's that's really good advice. I like that. And I'll, I'll say too, you know, um, Alul is not too difficult to read. I mean, Heidegger is much more difficult, I would say, as far as just like understanding what's being said. Uh, you know, Alul is <laughs> le less technical or, um, uh, you know, less analytic than Kaczynski is. So it's a little less straightforward, I guess is fair. Um, but it's by no means, I, I think, a difficult read. It's uh, inspirational in a lot of ways. I love uh um, you know, the, the fanciful way that he writes sometimes is uh, uh, refreshing. Um, and yeah, he has and, a reverence for humanity, too, in the same way that Kaczynski does, I think. Yeah, and he's a much more complicated thinker, to be sure. Mm -hmm. He's not someone whose ideas are easily distilled into a doctrine. No, yeah. And, and so I think Alul helps us guard against the temptation to form a kind of anti-tech doctrine, because he doesn't have one. So I, I think one of the biggest takeaways from the rule, which is really helpful as a counterpoint to Kaczynski, is the idea that freedom is essentially resistance against necessity, resistance against power. So in order to be free, there has to be a constraint and you have to overcome it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that Elul argues is that it's not possible to find freedom in nature. 
because nature is a set of necessities and determinisms too. Nature is a system that determines our behavior. Now, it does so in a different way that technolo than technology does. It's a different set of constraints and determinisms and necessities, but it's a system of constraints, determinisms, and necessities nonetheless. And so what Alul prods us to do is look at our current circumstance, understand the forces that are acting against us, and resist them and transgress them. And the forces that are acting on us and pushing us uh, change over time. You know, identifying one force and overcoming it and thinking that you're finally free at last is a mistake. Mm -hmm. So you know, Kaczynski's idea of the power process to Elul is, is absurd. You're not going to find freedom by obeying human nature. <laughs> You know, to, to Elul, Kaczynski's power process is nothing but enslavement to human nature. Mm. You know, if you're obeying the power process, well, you, you are subject to the power of nature, subject completely to the forces of nature. Now, it might be preferable to being forced, subject to the much more powerful forces of technology, but it's certainly not freedom in any fundamental sense. So this is why I'd recommend that you read Elul. Uh, Elul gives you, I think, a, a much more powerful conception of freedom. And that idea of freedom as transgressing or resisting necessity, I think is, is the idea that I think might help you live your life in a different way. So every time you feel the pull of your phone or feel the urge to check your email, and you say no, you recognize that you have this compulsion. You recognize that the phone is pulling you, that the email is pulling you, and you deliberately resist and keep reading your book. That is freedom. That is what freedom from technology really looks like. It's, well, willpower is a crude way of putting it, but Deliberate resistance. First, the recognition that you're determined. And second, the refusal to obey. Just that's say the no. <laughs> that's the, yeah, that's the idea that, that's the idea of freedom that Alul gives you, that you will not find in Kaczynski. Interesting. Now, I, 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 uh, I want to ask you too, because um, I know you've read a, a lot of Alul, um, and you, most people are, that are, talking about these ideas are most familiar with the technological society. Is there a number two book that you would recommend for people to, that, that they want to, if they want to dig into a little, a little bit more past the tech society? Well, there's a, a broad tie for number two. It's pretty mm -hmm. hard to pick a number two. The one that people typically read second is called propaganda. Mm -hmm. So in the technological society, uh, a gives you a comprehensive overview of the tech, the technical phenomenon, as he calls it. Mm -hmm. The society that is uh, structured according to technique, that is organized around the idea that everything must be rational and efficient. And then in, in propaganda, he gives you an account of one particularly important technique in our society, which is propaganda. So the function of propaganda is to give people a psycho psychological palliative that allows them to live in the 
society that we've created. It, it's a, a set of psychological techniques that allows us to cope with the stress and anxiety and depression and pressure that we're put under by the technological society. So propaganda is the usual number two. Mm -hmm. uh, the more difficult, but I think work that's tied for number two is Alul's book, Autopsy of Revolution. And I've discussed that a bit, so don't really need to rehash it. And there, Alul gives you a critique of the contemporary idea of revolution. He says, the French Revolution can't be our model. And then he sketches out at the end what an alternative idea of revolution would look like. Then he has a couple of other books about technology that are worth reading. Uh, so he wrote a book that's a follow-up to the Technological Society. It's published, I think, in 1977, called The Technological System. And there he's trying to update the Technological Society to take into account the more recent developments in technology. And he's especially thinking of computers and networks. Mm. And later on in 1988, uh, he published his last book about technology, which is called The Technological Bluff. Mm -hmm. And in that book, he's analyzing not uh, technique or techniques, but uh, technology proper, meaning the discourse of technique. So he's, he's analyzing the words and phrases and modes of thought that make up the technological society. So he's analyzing the technological mindset, in other words. And that's his, that's his last word on technology. Mm. So that's well worth a read and gives you his, well, reflections on what he had written before, as well as some new thoughts about technology. Gotcha. Now, if you want to start at the other end and you want uh, a kind of overview of Elul's thought that gives you both the theology and the critique of technology, I'd suggest uh, starting with, well, his, I guess it was his first book on the subject, at least. I think it was published 1948. And it's translated in two different ways. One is presence in the modern world. And the other is the presence of the kingdom. So look up either of those titles and you'll find it. And there you get in a very short book, uh, almost an, a total overview of everything Alul wrote after that. You get encapsulated in one book, most of the, or at least in some form, most of the points that Alul went on to develop in his later books. So you get his Christian theology and you get the idea that our society is fundamentally one in which means are privileged over ends. Mm -hmm. So that gives you, I think, a pretty big overview of, of Alul's thought. The thing to keep in mind with Alul is in every book except the presence of the kingdom, you're dealing with one side of a dialectic. So when you read the technological society by itself, you get this, well, seemingly pessimistic, fatalistic view that we are determined on all sides by technology and there's no way out. It's the kind of book that by itself would drive you to despair. Mm -hmm. And unless you read the other side, and unless you read Alul's ethics, 
like one, one of his books is The Ethics of Freedom. Unless you read the theological part and you accept it, which is quite a demand, uh, you're only getting one side of the argument. So Presence in the Modern World or The Presence of the Kingdom is really the only book that gives you both sides of a little thought. Okay. So that in a nutshell is what people should read. I would suggest that after the technological society, you look at the technological bluff. Okay, for sure. Tech, tech society, then tech bluff. Yep. And then, then we also got presence of the modern world or presence of the kingdom. Awesome, cool. Thank, thank you, uh, uh, thank you for that, Sean. Um, uh, but yeah, is um, is there anything uh, else? At, at the, I think we're gonna um, sign off in a minute here. Do, is there anything? Uh, lastly, that you wanted to mention, or that you feel you didn't get to explain enough, or um, something that you were working on that maybe you want to talk about? I don't know. Anything? Really? <laughs> Just kind of a free form. If not, it's totally cool too. <laughs> well, I will eventually, hopefully in the not too distant future, have a book about uh, anti tech ideas that centers on Alul and Kaczynski. Okay. So stay tuned for that. The article is a is one part of a larger project, and there will there, there will be a book hopefully in the not too distant future. Awesome, looking forward to that. Uh, once again, your article is the Unabomber and the Origins of Anti Tech Radicalism, uh, published in the Journal of Political Ideologies, and. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the description to this video and recommend everyone go read it and check it out and cite it and start writing your own stuff and let's uh, get this discussion going and the um, movement moving further along. Um, but yeah, uh, Sean, thank you again for uh, agreeing to come on and talk with us and uh, um, talk about these connections with uh, Kaczynski and Alul and where a lot of these ideas come from and the kind of the intellectual history and development of these ideas. Uh, I think it's it's really refreshing to um, talk about and hear about other thinkers besides Kaczynski because he's such a huge name right now and he's you know the one that most people are aware of but uh, not a lot of people know where he got his ideas from and, uh, or even know that he wasn't the originator of a lot of his ideas and that there's a whole slew of literature and things to look at and study out there. Um, so thank you again for coming on, Sean, and talking with us. Well, thanks so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. And yeah. thanks to everyone for listening as well. Yes, thank, thank you for listening, everyone. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, catch you soon, we hope. Hey guys, so after the interview, Sean and I kept talking for a little while, and the following is that conversation. So enjoy. Yeah, it is. And your first question why are we so afraid of the Unabomber? I don't know. I really don't know. Maybe uh, it's just too I, recent. I, I don't, it's too real because, like, I don't know. We, not we, too we, recent, though. You know, it's, no. it's been over a quarter of a century. Let's put yeah. this in perspective. That is weird to think about. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but uh, a lot has happened since then, right? The the man is has been in prison. He's no threat to anyone. You know, he is an old mathematician sitting in a prison cell writing books. Mm -hmm. you know, he, I I don't see why it's easy to publish an analysis of, say, you know, some far right thinker. You know, you can you can easily publish an article on Carl Schmidt. Are you familiar with him? I'm not. I'm not. 
the Nazi legal theorist. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a darling of political theorists now. And mm -hmm. some philosophers are also fans of his. Uh, but he was, after Heidegger, the most famous German intellectual who was a member of the Nazi party. Mm -hmm. And he's a staunch critic of liberalism. You know, he's decidedly a figure of the right, said lots of anti-Semitic things. You know, he's a contemporary boogeyman, if anyone knows. Mm -hmm. But it's easy to publish about it. Yeah. Lots of figures on the left have taken up some of his ideas, co-opted them, used them. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why Heidegger is not beyond the pale, and Schmidt is not beyond the pale, and Antonio Negri is not beyond the pale. All of them, on the contrary, are, well, thinkers that you can discuss in polite society mm -hmm. and intellectual establishments. But Kaczynski is... Well, Kaczynski will hinder your career if you dare to talk about him. I wonder, actually, it's pretty strange, actually. Do, do you think it's maybe it might be partially due to the fact that he's like an individual advocating these ideas, that he's not part of like some uh, grand group? So, like, I don't know, maybe you could maybe people are more comfortable talking about like Carl Schmidt because they can attribute some of his ideas to like this to like the Nazi party as a whole that like, I don't know that they, that there's, they can somehow separate the individual from like the group that they were a part of, but Kaczynski's, it's just all him. So I don't know, do, do, is, do you think there might be something with that or I'm just kind of speculating, right? Now. That's, I think that's an interesting hypothesis, but I think what cuts in the other direction is the fact that he is so often lumped into some group or another. People don't think about him as an individual for the most part. They think of him as you know, a radical environmentalist or a neo-Luddite or an anarchist. You know, they, they stick a label on him. Mm -hmm. They try to make sense of him by slapping some well, inapt label on him. Mm -hmm. Which is a technical move in itself, right? That us, well, of course, we're it afraid is of engaging. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah it's, it's a way to pigeonhole him and to avoid having to, to deal with him. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of what else could be it. I think, well, at least some of it is the wide, widespread perception that he's insane. Mm, yeah, that's probably part of it. And that, yeah, then, and then like these Netflix documentaries and stuff aren't helping either when they, they focus so much on like the MK Ultra experiment and like, oh, we never got laid in college and like the Yeah, of course, they, they try to explain him away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it, it worked on me in the beginning. And I thought, well, this guy is a crazed conspiracy theorist, a kind of Charles Manson. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I bought that narrative. But one only has to read the manifesto to dispel that, one would have thought. Yeah, that's really it, right? Like, I, I reading his words makes it makes it apparent how, like, not insane he was I, I don't know I, I for me when I first read the manifesto it was like uh I don't know just like stumbling upon some answer that I didn't even know I had a question about kind of like I <laughs> talked about right like all these things that he was talking about like with the power process and engaging in surrogate activities I was like 
that is why I feel this way about the world that we're living in right now. He was like, <laughs> he hit the nail on the head for me. And so I was like, I was like, oh, like he's, he's, he's right. And then you hear the whole story of like, oh, he like evaded the FBI for 17 years living in a cabin in Montana. And I'm like, crazy people can't do that. <laughs> like, I don't no, know. That's, that's right. And, and Michael Mello, uh, I mentioned him earlier, the law professor. Mm -hmm. you know, he exchanged about 150 letters with Kaczynski and had dozens of phone calls with him and said, look, the, the only way that you could portray this guy as insane is if sending bombs to people in the mail and living in a cabin and hating technology add up to mental illness. Mm -hmm. So if those things by definition uh, imply mental illness, then he's mentally ill. But Mello says, that's just so far from the truth. That is just a smokescreen. Mello says, he's not a mad bomber. He's a chillingly sane bomber. Mm -hmm. And from the perspective of, even from the perspective of the people he bombed, I think it does a disservice to them to say that he's insane. If he's insane, it mitigates his responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's not just a disservice to his ideas. It's a disservice to the people he killed and injured. Mm -hmm. This is my response to the people who portray him as insane. Mm -hmm. This is, was a completely cynical, dishonest attempt to mitigate his responsibility for his crimes. So, you know, when someone accuses you of being an apologist, for saying Kaczynski isn't insane. It's, you have an easy retort. Well, you are letting him off the hook for his crimes by saying he's insane. Yeah. Taking the and easy way out. That's right. I, I was going to say too that, uh, um, oh shoot, what was I going to say? That, um, oh yeah, I've even like, we've toyed with the idea of like printing out copies of his manifesto and just like, taking his name out or putting it at the very end or something like that and saying by the <laughs> like by the way this was written by Theodore King. <laughs> like I wonder if people would be more reticent to the ideas if they didn't know who wrote them because I mean especially like in like our generation I don't know like I, I didn't I wasn't uh uh I wasn't an avid reader when the manifesto came out if I was even <laughs> alive so like uh you know uh, some of people that like are my friends from like high school and stuff and they'd see that um, I'm working on this project and they're like, Oh, like you talk about like Kaczynski, didn't he like kill a bunch of people? I'm like, yeah. Did you read what he wrote? And they're like, no. And I'm like, Oh, then you, you probably should. And then you might have a different opinion. I, I don't know. People are so ready to, to buy that story um, because it just, it, it allows them to continue living their lives without having to question it. It's probably, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to swallow when you're, so invested in uh the technological society you don't want to you don't want to hear criticism about it right like that and, forces yeah, of you course. to the, the fact that he used violence provides an easy reason to dismiss him mm -hmm. you know, it's it's an easy out for those who don't want to engage with him but at the same time uh elul is well even easier to dismiss precisely because he doesn't have the notoriety. So on one hand, you know, it, it, here's what Kaczynski would say. He'd say, well, the reason that you've 
read this at all. The reason that anyone has read this is precisely that I've used violence. Mm-hmm. Who the hell has heard of Jacques Ellul? Yeah. <laughs> People who listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. A few philosophers of technology, a few sociologists, and a few theologians. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one thing Jacoby says in this essay of his in Dark Mountain, uh, he says, you know, people hate Kaczynski because he won. And I think that's part of it. Yeah. He, he kind of did one up the system. He kind of did. He kind of did get. He got away from the FBI for seventeen years. He's. He. I guess is this. Is would this be considered the like only time that we've that the United States government has given into the demands of a terrorist, or probably um, yeah yeah. I I, I, I I think it is, and it's certainly the only time that newspapers have been blackmailed into publishing a, a short book. It's, yeah, completely unedited, just like yeah. Yeah, well, uh, the joke is that, you know, he submitted this manuscript. He, well, uh, what, what I've written in a piece that's coming up soon. <laughs> so first he broke the rule against submitting the same manuscript to multiple journals simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> to, the, to Penthouse, to the Washington Post, the New York Times, a couple others. And uh, then, well, this was, as, as one sociologist said, he says, this is the most reviewed academic manuscript in history. Mm-hmm. Think about all the academics that the FBI sent it to before it was published. Yeah. Had more reviewers than any journal article in history. <laughs> and he didn't even get a revise and resubmit. No. <laughs> That's great. It's the most and, successful, uh, <laughs> like, it's successful publication that we've ever had. <laughs> so it, that is... Uh, one of the most remarkable parts of the story, but there is another, uh, there's another piece to all this that it's often neglected when people talk about the manifesto and the demand for publication. One of the things that was in there, one of the things he demanded uh, in exchange for uh, ceasing his bombing campaign was actually the right to publish follow-ups. So he, well, and they agreed, to publish short follow-ups uh, after the publication of the manifesto. And I actually found his notes for a follow-up essay. Oh. So he had a skeleton structure of a follow-up essay, which is another one of the pieces of gold that's in that archive. Oh, okay. It's called gold, so, you said? Or, oh, oh, one no, of the no. nuggets of gold, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so the, it, it's just notes for a follow-up essay. Okay. And uh, one of the things in there. One of the things he planned to elaborate on, there's a tiny bit in one of my footnotes about this. So he planned to have a section on natural selection and how evolution drives the development of technology. So uh, there was a lot more to be written about the evolutionary underpinnings of his view of technology. Yeah, that is something that uh, I don't know, like I'm, uh, I haven't dug into too deeply but something that like sticks in my brain is like um i don't know i guess a lot of pro tech people have this attitude that we are kind of like no i guess it's one of two things i guess there are some people that think that we're kind of using technology to overcome evolution right that we're kind of like engaging in this rational control of how we develop but it's not actually we're not the ones controlling it (laughs) um and uh 
but then I think there's some people that say that, you know, we are, again, have this like natural tendency to, to create technology that like making tools is something innate to humanity. And that like, to, uh, for it to expand to this point is like a success for evolution for them. Um, but well, uh, yeah. think about it this way, the retort, the obvious retort to the second point is that, okay, well, maybe we do have a, an innate tendency or drive to create and use tools. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, technology ceases to be merely a collection of tools and machines. Yeah. It becomes a system, like an ecosystem or an organism in its own right, that rapidly evolves. Yeah. And of course, you know, a, a, a tumor is built from our own cells. A tumor is in some sense part of us as well. Yeah, technology is in some sense natural, right? In the same kind of way. That's right. A tumor is natural, isn't it? Yeah. It's at least natural once removed. Mm -hmm. As this technology is, is. This is made out of paper, if you want to call a book technology. This is made out of natural resources, right? At some of course. Point. And you know, there's, uh, Skirbina emphasizes this constantly. He says there's no mm -hmm. deep ontological distinction between technology and nature. Yeah. That binary doesn't really work. You know, it's, yeah, technology is in some sense natural, but again, a tumor is natural. So from the perspective of a biological human being, this form of rapid technological evolution is malignant and threatening. So just as the tumor kills its host, well, yeah, it, the, the technological system is a, well, a rapidly growing tumor on our human society. It's a cancerous entity. I think one of the hardest questions, though, is figuring out when it stops being, uh, you know, like a tool for human means and when it turns into a system. It, it seems like really hard to define where that point is. And I guess this is why some of like the uh, anarcho, anarcho primitivist sentiments kind of make sense to me in that like, uh, anyone else that's drawing a line, it seems like it's really hard to defend that line. And so if you just like say, oh, no, we're just getting rid of all of it, just like, you know, level the ground, uh, so to speak, um, that at least, I don't know, it, it at least requires a less rigorous argument, it seems. Um, yeah, it, it, well, eliminates the need to draw some arbitrary distinction. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to identify the point at which technology took off and became autonomous. Yeah. And uh, Kaczynski says this somewhere, I think it's in the manifesto, says, at some point, Europe became dynamic. Mm -hmm. And we don't really know why. There's no yeah. particular reason for it. You know, it. It's not clear when it became an autonomous system. Mm -hmm. The fact is that it is now. Yeah. That's undeniable. When it happened is a difficult question. And it's difficult, not least because it's, well, the people at the time would not have recognized it because it was a gradual process. Right. And we don't have access to the information necessary to determine when it, came, when it became autonomous looking back. Mm -hmm. Now, Alul, I think, believes that technology is always, in some sense, autonomous. That even the simple tool 
is a means that easily becomes an end in itself. Yeah, so fine, an axe, a stone axe is something for cutting down a tree. But when you make it your life's work to develop a better and better axe, mm -hmm. well, who's really in control there? Mm -hmm. When an arms race takes off, you know, one tribe develops a better axe and then the other has to develop a better axe to keep up. Who's really in control? Competition drives a kind of arms race in which each side has to develop better and better means. So in that case, the means do become ends. They overshadow all the ends. Mm -hmm. the, the fundamental question for Alul is when do the means start to become ends in themselves? Mm -hmm. That is really the question. It's not a specific point of autonomy, but a question of the relative balance between means and ends. Yeah. But on that note, uh, I should get going and have some supper here. For sure. Yeah, it's same. I got to get some food too. <laughs> yeah, but this has been great. So thanks again for having me. This has been a really enjoyed this. And hopefully we could do this again at some point in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, thank you for coming on. <laughs> Cheers, Griffin. Have a good weekend. Cheers, you too. Bye.